everybody, and welcome to Feeling Seen, the podcast that talks about the movies that make us feel seen. My co-host today is director Mariama Diallo, whose new film, Master, premiered to acclaim at this year's Sundance Film Festival. And we are going to be talking about another movie that premiered to acclaim, Cassie Lemon's award-winning, heralded 1997 gothic drama, Eve's Bayou. And you know, particularly that incredible standout performance from baby star Journey Smollett. Uh, And then at the end of the show, I'm going to have one quick thing before we go. And that one quick thing is going to be about me relating to the asexuality of Robert Pattinson's Batman in The Batman, a movie I love. So stick around for that. Bonus, guys, you're here for a landmark episode. The conversation you're about to hear is the first time we have recorded this in person at Maximum Fun Studios. We are a pandemic baby, and that means we have been zooming this exclusively since we premiered. And I cannot wait for you to hear the advanced, I don't know, fucking Dolby Atmos level sound quality sonic wonders that is recording live in a studio. So let's get right down to the interview now that you know all the good backstory. Uh, I am sitting here with somebody who I have hoped for a long time that I would get a chance to interview in this exact context. Um, Mariama Diallo, filmmaker, uh, writer, director. You may uh, multiple years ago have been familiar with her short Hair Wolf, uh, a breakout sensation. And now you may be familiar with her work because she has debuted at last through the wars of COVID uh, her feature film, The Master. Or master. It's just master. And I know that is very specifically important to drop the article of the. I've been doing my reading. I've been doing my research. Master debuted at Sundance. Uh, Mariama Diallo, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Jordan. Um, You're the best. Yes. So there is a film called The Master. Yes. You know, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. Yes. Truly would be my main pick, actually, for the one of the Academy Awards that Amy Adams should have won up to this point. I mean, amazing film. Yeah. The Master is a very ominous and upsetting movie. It is. So is so is Master. What is the what is the brief on Master that people you know like what are they what are they expecting to find? So it is a horror film and it's set at this northeast college that is very spooky and foreboding mm-hmm. and has a history that goes all the way back to the witch trial era and it follows three women led by Gail Bishop who's played by Regina Hall as they're trying to find a place for themselves on campus. Um, And in the midst of all of this, uh, freshman Jasmine is assigned a room that might be haunted. Mm -hmm. That contributes to her semester. Well, obviously, that's a big word, master like that. That conveys a lot. There's a lot of sort of power behind it. One, you know, perhaps one wishes to be a master. One wishes to achieve mastery of something. But to take something and be like, this is going to be in the context of a genre movie. This is going to be in the context of horror. And therefore, know that this word, scary. And you're going to feel a lot of bad ways about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Tell me about weaponizing language in that way. I love that term. I love the term weaponizing language. And I think that that's certainly, you know, part of what happened here. The first part of the film that I really understood and the first aspect of the film that I had was the title. Mm -hmm. Um, I ran into the, quote, master of of my residence uh, years after graduating from college. Mm -hmm. Um, and we had a really lovely interaction. The only weird thing is that in greeting him, I referred to him as master. And wow. that was, you know, weird. <laughs> <laughs> that seemed weird and messed up, but only outside of the school. Right, you know? yeah. yeah. Like you bump him on the street. It's not like you're in the hallowed halls of you know, the prestigious Yale University. It's like, okay, this is the parlance of the environment right. that has, as I understand it, since changed. Yes, it's since changed. That's gone. That's over. Right. <laughs> That's, that era is over. You're like, glad I was a part of it, I guess. Right. Um, but then you bump onto this person on the street, and it's like, a master so-and-so. It's like... What's going on here? Yeah. And he knew it was weird. I could (laughs) sense from his reaction that's kind of what cued me to feel uncomfortable as well because Mm -hmm. it was just the way that the blood drained from his face when I, you know, because I saw him a little bit of a ways away just so to catch his attention. I said, hey, master, you know. (laughs) 
and it, it it was bizarre and it, it it's something that I could kind of only I think come to terms with after graduating and after being outside of that space um, and I just kept on turning the word over in my head mm-hmm. and I loved I loved all of the different sort of pointy sides like it was really you know it had a lot of spikes on it mm-hmm. I was thinking just like you said like all all of the different meanings that that one can take away from that word and then you know obviously the historical associations and everything else and I I was just really excited by being able to kind of pull from my brain mm-hmm. this thing that had been you know introduced in a sly way almost yeah. you know it kind of slid into my own lexicon and I and I took it on without you know examining it too much so to take it out and and to weaponize it and to kind of let an entire story turn around that term felt like a good reclamation mm-hmm. of you know of part of my experience what is the movie that you have brought and the character that you have brought for us to discuss today in addition to your own film so the movie that I brought is, you know, it's also in a supernatural and like slightly horror space. Mm-hmm. It's Eve's Bayou. Mm-hmm. And the character, although it could be several of them, the one that I'm focusing in on specifically and that at the time that I first watched it, mm-hmm. which is when it came out, I definitely identified with um, young Eve Batiste, who's played by Journey Smollett. Um, amazing character. Crazy performance. Like, yeah. you know. Eve's Bayou is about a family living on a bayou in Louisiana. They go back on this land generations. They are descended from a slave woman who was freed by her master and then kind of, I guess, gifted 16 children by him. And so uh, this family uh, comprising Samuel L. Jackson and as the um, well-to-do sort of physician in town, he is a philandering man. And the he is not the star of this movie, but the consequences of his actions sort of result in watching this uh, group of women around him, his wife, his sister, his young children, uh, at discussion at the forefront of the discussion today, Journey Smollett's uh, rendition of Eve, Eve Batiste, the 10-year-old precocious yet lovable yet incredible audacious uh, force of nature that she is. The movie uh, explores how they are all sort of finding themselves amidst the betrayal of this patriarchal figure. And we are discovering and learning about their sort of rich and gorgeous mosaic structure of how they they fit together with him around him and and without him in, in some cases as well. The summer I killed my father, I was 10 years old. My brother Poe was nine, and my sister Cicely had just turned 14. I, you know, I like kids, but kids on the screen, it can be (laughs) really touch and go, you know, because... I have a disaster movie podcast, and we have a whole thing dedicated to the trope of the disaster movie child. Uniformly horrible. (laughs) Uniformly horrible. I'm not You want the disaster movie child to be taken to the disaster. You're like, yeah, exactly. You're like, wave, come and... Take this kid away. <laughs> yeah. Earthquake, open up the ground yeah. and like Aliens, you know, swallow them up. Go. Yeah. Absolutely. Anything, you know. So it's it's tough, clearly, because it seems so hard to nail. And that performance <sighs> is just so authentic and charismatic. And, you know, I I really love that character and love that film. It's dead. Are you sure? It's not moving, is it? Maybe it's just sick. Dead, little chicken. A fun thing about doing this podcast is watching the things that bring to the table, that people bring to the table in while having them in mind. So I just watched your movie Master, and then I'm watching Eve's Bayou. And I was wanting to talk to you about, you know, those two movies and the parallel of sort of ritual among community mm. and working in your own movie with that kind of rubber reality, that sort of dreamlike poetic is it real or is it an interpretation of memory and the notion of like in Eve's Bayou we have these characters who live amongst their own rituals within their community and then it it seems like in your movie Master we have you know Jasmine is thrown into a situation where suddenly she is at the whims of everyone else's rituals that she has no say in and it's not the architect of and so I wanted to talk about that kind of parallel that I was seeing there. Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting... You know, the way your work relates to Eve's bio. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Extrapolate. It's a good good point to raise. And, you know, I think that one one of the primary differences that jumps out to me is, um, 
you know, I think Eve's Bayou is about community and familiarity mm-hmm. and you know and there are the things that are unfamiliar for Eve and and that you know kind of scare her until she comes to understand them better but the larger context for you know the film's setting and the film's characters is that they're in this you know kind of self-contained and autonomous space yeah. that generations of their family have lived in and it's you know it's it's a a landscape that they know like the back of their hands mm-hmm. and so the entry into ritual can eventually be welcoming yeah. you know and that it's like these are rituals for them or made by their ancestors and you know like you said with Jasmine it's other people's rituals yeah. right? and she's entering into the space of alienation and you know ritual and community can be so isolating when you're approaching it from the outside, which is, I think, how Jasmine is coming at everything that we see happen in the film. It, and it really, it, it, and because I was thinking so much along the lines of, of of ritual when I started watching Master, it was really, it's it just jumped out to me sort of how steeped in ritual and tradition these old institutions are. And like, yeah, without any regard for how that affects the outsider. Yeah. Like when you see the 10-year scenes, there's this... um musical theme that um, recurs in both of them where there's sort of like this ritualistic drumbeat that kicks in at a certain point. And there's definitely, you know, this sense of these unspoken, you know, traditions and the ways that the other characters who inhabit the space kind of understand how to navigate it. And either Gail or Jasmine kind of find themselves just on the outside Mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. And I, and you know, and then you have a contrast of that in Bayou where when, Eve comes into sort of her legacy that has been carried on by her Aunt Moselle, where she sort of she realizes that she has the sight at a certain point and it embraces that as a part of herself and then as an extension of like the legacy of this family. Um, and then also you have like the family, like this Creole family where intermittently like they'll break into non-English and it like you look I was watching it with subtitles on to make sure I was getting everything and they don't translate what those subtitles are into mm-hmm. English. It's just and I, I appreciated that as somebody who couldn't understand it as just a snapshot of a world that I was not of and I don't need to be of, but that I could appreciate it in its rich fullness for not by not pandering to me by over explaining these people's lives. Right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that's always like an interesting and an important balance, um, you know, when making films that emerge from like a specific community like yeah. that just reminds me of um, Hairwolf. There was uh, there are all sorts of references, you know, within that film that are, you know, quite specific to like a certain kind of black American experience. And there is this question at a certain point of like how much to explain. Yeah. Um, And or, you know, and obviously you want a viewer to feel invited in. But then like, you know, what's the balance? And I remember talking about it with my mom and my mom was like. I watch, you know, she was like, someone can watch Lock, Stock and like Two Smoking Barrels and there's all sorts of things flying over your head, but you get in where you can and yep. you get from it what you can. And like, that's the point. Like, don't, yeah, you can't, you can't pander, like you said, mm-hmm. to every single audience member. You also have to imagine that they're going to be able to get on board with you know, with the story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so if you watched if you watched Eve's Bayou when it came out, which was 1997, I believe. Yeah. You must have been. I'm I'm 36. I'm, I'm I believe I'm getting close to that geriatric millennial margin. Um, <laughs> but I'm imagining you're around the age yeah. of 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 journey in this yes. performance. How how does that hit you when you first see it? Because like you watch that. I feel like you watch that movie now. And I can't think of many successors to like a black girl's coming-of-age story that Journey Smollett gets to play this with, like, gets right. to play through with this. Like, how is that, receiving that in, in 1997? Not not necessarily knowing what you won't have around her? Like, I, yeah, just talk yeah. about your encounter with the character. Entirely. <laughs> I'm talking too much. No, it's all that, you know, and I was probably, yeah, just about the same age as her. She felt like up here, and, you know, I wasn't necessarily 
aware of the dearth, you know, of other representations right. of young girls of color. And, you know, I love like a coming of age kind of story. And I had like, you know, whether it's in books like I like Jacob Have I Loved. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever read that YA book. That's like a book <laughs> I've read like 100 times. And it's, you know, these two little white girl twins. And I loved their trials and tribulations. And I was on board with it. So I wasn't necessarily old enough to sense the lack, but yeah. I could feel the addition, yeah. you know, of what I was also getting from that character and from that film. And and the way there's something so, you know, natural about how the entire world is set up. And it's really, you know, it's not like there's there's not this concept of like exceptionalism. And it's yeah. really like, you know, it's truly like the specific story of this girl and her family and the characters and less. So, so I think that's why it also didn't necessarily flag for me in my head because it wasn't like a uh this is a story about black people yeah. you know kind yeah. of thing it's like this is a story and here are the characters and yes their identity is so essential to who they are but the purpose of the film itself is to tell you this incredibly personal story of this coming of age moment and also just the way that you know the character is written and drawn as mm-hmm. being you know smart but you know rebellious and defiant but sensitive it really you know it resonated with so many of the ways that I thought about myself that I just I was just so excited by it and Mm -hmm. I just thought that I wanted to be like her you know and I felt like I was like her but I wanted to be even more it was it was just amazing the scene where the scene where she's starting to come unglued because yes their mom has trapped him in the house to keep them safe and And she's read all the Shakespeare (laughs) the way Journey Smollett says goddamn in I'm like, nobody's ever said the word goddamn before or since. It belongs to Journey Smollett, apparently. With all with all the emotion. Yeah, what does she say? She's like, I already I already read all the yeah, like We've read all the tragedies. What? We've read most of the tragedies. We're starting on the goddamn comedies. She's just like looking at her mom like, you need to end this now. I <laughs> she love get out of that. the goddamn tub. Yeah. I saw that there was um, a few years ago, maybe like three or four pre-pandemic, they um, had a a, a screening series at BAM that brought uh, that film there. They Mm -hmm. had a a print. And so I watched it, you know, in a theater with an audience after like all of this time all over again. And that line killed like, you know, and it's just like it's just amazing, you know, the the range of her performance. But, yeah, that that goddamn is... (laughs) It's. I felt it. You know, I felt it in my heart and soul. Well, and then, like you were saying, the the range of the performance, like it's it is it is phenomenal. The almost whiplash you feel, and how quickly she can go from having more sauce than anybody has ever had on screen to being so like to watching her be so mad at her father, but then have those moments where like she just loves him overwhelmingly, and then she's like, "I'm I'm sorry," and like and start is so tender and apologizing. Yeah. When you see like a really full child performance on screen, and you suddenly become aware of like how much children are internalizing at all times and experiencing for the first time, it, it and the way she captures it is like. It feels like it's only something that you could do if you hadn't worked a ton before, because otherwise, like, you know too much. It's like her instincts just took over and make this beautifully layered performance come to life. I know. I know. It's 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 a really rare thing. Although I wonder, I know that I know from my own child watching uh, habits mm-hmm. that she had been on this show with all of her siblings. Yeah. Was that before or after this film? Because I think that actually she might have been like, did you watch On Our Own as, yes. as a youngster? Yes. <laughs> the, it, like, what a what a troop. I know. <laughs> and also what a trip of a show, because I'm pretty sure that the premise was like, they're like, their parents had, you know, maybe like died under tragic circumstances <laughs> or something right. and they were on their own. But like <laughs> every week own. or something, there was like... A social worker like might come and discover that like they're on their own. Oh my god! <laughs> and just keeps going back to them being on their yeah, own. Really held together by by the title, but they were like, you know, they had like maybe like a teenage sibling or something who was looking over the younger kids. But I mean, she was for me. She was always the star. She was always the the main attraction. Having had a you know a percentage of a lifetime to watch and absorb so much more work, how does her performance as Eve sort of? set itself in contrast to like, wow, I, I knew I really jibed with this when it came out, but like, 
her impact. Like, oh, my God. Like, how does how does that sit with more years of experience behind you to take in more media and more performances to look back at that and see how it holds up or evolves for you? I mean, the even just the film as a whole, it was it was really gratifying to see it again with adult eyes mm-hmm. um, and to see that it was still so powerful. I think that on the rewatch, the thing that I really took away in terms of character was that, you know, Eve was who I wanted to be, but I right. think that her older sister, Cicely, her older sister Cicely, mm-hmm. might be a little bit closer to who I am. <laughs> don't you use that tone of voice with me, Cicely Baptiste, and don't be rolling your eyes at your father behind my back. You're looking right at us, Mama. Nothing ever happens behind your back. So that's something that I'm working through. Is yeah, you know, <laughs> working yeah, through. yeah, conceited Cicely, who like you know, has a shocking turn towards the end. You know, there's, like, not, maybe not everything is, like, yeah. the way that I would have handled things in the film. <laughs> right, you right. Because there are definitely some twists and turns, but, like, yeah, but the core of that character, Cicely, is another one that, you know, I feel reluctantly seen. <laughs> you know, I'm like, ooh, I see myself also mm-hmm, in this mm-hmm. character. God, and Megan Good. Megan Good. And I think that was maybe her first role. I, I was reading where she talked about, like, that was her first lead role, that was for first sure. Role. Okay, yeah. And... The, and I, I looked up just to see because Journey Smollett is one of those characters, I one of those actresses. I, I always forget how old they are because she's been around. And I was like, wait, she's thirty five. I know, I know. She's, she's an young ancient being. Yeah, how is she thirty five? I know, I know. It's like it's one of those things where they've just been on the screen for so long. It's like, how are you not fifty? Like, <laughs> yeah. what's going on? Yeah. yeah, like you've literally been a full professional your entire life. Like, yeah. Okay. On its 20th anniversary, Angelica Jade Bastian uh, wrote a wonderful sort of retrospective on Eve's Bayou for Vulture. Obviously, the realities of the world around the Bayou are what they are. This movie isn't skirting them. It's just choosing to make its focus on this family. And Angelica said that the movie, uh, she was, quote, indicative of how the 1990s was an exemplary decade for its depictions of the multiplicity of black identity within pop culture. Yep. And there was so much possibility in the 90s that it feels like instead of, like, we're kind of coming back to now fulfilling the promise of what that was, but that there was, like, a 20-year almost hiatus yeah. between, like, the aughts and into the tens yeah. that was like, no, let's just whitewash everything and flatten it. Yeah. Also, I was just reading yesterday, maybe, or the day before. I can't remember in what publication it was, but it was discussing uh, the death of UPN and yeah. how, you know, how when the WB and UPN, I guess, merged to mm-hmm. create the CW, there was just this, like, quite intentional abandonment of all of the, you know, black shows that mm-hmm. had made UPN the network that it was. And I I think about when I was growing up and the shows that were on TV that were, you know, I mean, Good and bad and in between, but there was, like, there were options and there was range and there was, like, you know, Living Single and there's Martin and there's, Mm -hmm. like, you know, the Wayans Brothers show and there's, like, Girlfriends. And it's just, like, all all of this programming that it felt like almost in a blink of an eye in a way that didn't completely make sense. They all just kind of disappeared. Yeah. And and that there was really, you know, this moment of, like, a cultural desert. And what it really makes me think about as well is how precarious... It all is, you yeah. know, and how, you know, there are these moments when black cinema and, you know, black media could flourish and there's the interest mm-hmm. and there's, you know, there's the talent mm-hmm. and there are the creatives there who are able to do it. But on a certain, you know, structural and monetary level mm-hmm. that you can get the rug pulled out from under you if it's just like if a power that be decides that, you know, they're going to move in an opposite direction. Yeah. <laughs> the direction is away from black stories. Right. That that you can have what happened, which, yeah, blows my mind. Well, yeah, it, it's amazing how, like, you think of marquee movie stars in the 1990s and you have Whoopi Goldberg, you have, you do have Will Smith, you have Wesley Snipes, you have the entire Wayans, like you said, the Wayans brothers. Yeah, I, Halle Berry, Vivica. Yep, yeah. Yep. They were all there. They were they were all there. There yeah. there was Set It Off. There was Waiting to Exhale. Yes. There, there was Eve's Bayou. There was this multiplicity of the black experience. And it was like, oh, great, we're on this right track. Yeah. No, thanks. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I know. Wait, we were doing so well. <laughs> what the fuck did you do? I know. It's so baffling. I remember, like, when I was younger, I had this concept that, you know, progress moves in a pretty linear forward direction. Mm-hmm. 
and and that's just how life works and the world works. And one of my early lessons of, you know, transitioning into adulthood is that that is a complete fiction. And there are, you know, there are a lot of periods that take a gigantic step backwards. And, you know, creatively, I think that that was one of them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I wanted to hear from you as somebody who, like, has done acclaimed work leading up to this. You've you've worked on Random Acts of Flyliness, I believe. You were a writer for that. And obviously there there is Hairwolf. You you have been a working uh, filmmaker for a number of years now. But the first feature is coming out and you worked on it again. (laughs) The stop and start nightmare of COVID-19 life. How do you approach that? balance in your own life of like this is my first feature like do I, like okay let's move fast and break things but like also there are these limits of how i know the industry works or like where where are you at with that in your own kind of creative journey yeah you know fortunately i wrote i i wrote master and i conceived master before I had any idea of how the industry worked. Great, um, which is which is great. There were there was like at one point, when, like I was like, why do we have so many damn characters and so many <laughs> locations? It's because I was just writing a story. This is you know I was a tutor at the time, and I was uh-huh. in this writer's workshop, and so my goal, the only goal that I set in my head was finish this before it's your slot in the workshop, so that you can t- have something to workshop for them. Great, and so that's kind um. of how I you know, approached the story and approached writing it. So it was like from a, you know, a a not, I didn't lead with practicality. Yeah. And I think that, you know, inadvertently and fortunately, I also wasn't really thinking about, you know, some of the practical limitations that, you know, might crop up because of how the industry works. Yeah. and and there were also you know some some cold cold nights in the northeast <laughs> where i was just wondering why i had why i had set the film where i did and in the way that i did but it was just you know i was really led by the story and i kind mm-hmm. of i kind of went with it the broadest concept was just directed by the story which i think was a happy accident and i'm going to mm. try to now intentionally take that approach and and try to carry it through as I as I go on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I, I hope you I hope you do. Yeah. I hope you do. <laughs> yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be back in a minute with Mariama Diallo. Hi, I'm Jesse Thorne, the founder of Maximum Fun, and I have a special announcement. I'm no longer embarrassed by my brother, my brother, and me. You know, for years, each new episode of this supposed advice show was a fresh insult, a depraved jumble of erection jokes, ghost humor, and frankly, this is for the best, very little actionable advice. But now, as they enter their twilight years, I'm as surprised as anyone to admit that it's gotten kind of good. Justin, Travis, and Griffin's witticisms are more refined, like a humor column in a fancy magazine. And they hardly ever say Bazinga anymore. So, after you've completely finished listening to every single one of all of our other shows, why not join the McElroy Brothers every week for My Brother, My Brother, and Me. Are you ready to binge-watch something... Old? The Greatest Generation is a podcast about Star Trek by a couple of hosts a little bit embarrassed to even have a Star Trek podcast. Hosted by me, Ben Harrison. And me, Adam Pranica. We get into the critical, the technical, the science fictional aspects of the show we love while roasting it and each other at the same time. We've completed an entire series about Star Trek The Next Generation and another one about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and we've just begun Star Trek Voyager. So now is a great time to start watching a new Star Trek series with us. So subscribe to The Greatest Generation on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts and become a friend of DeSoto today. Feeling Seen. I'm your host, Jordan Cruciola, and I have been talking with Mariama Diallo, director of Master, and we're talking about both her new film and the 1997 film, Eve's Bayou. 
I remember um, we were on a panel conversation together for it was like a, a one of the virtual film festival settings that was happening in year one of the pandemic. Two of the people on the panel were you and Nikki Atujusu, who both made your feature debuts to acclaim at Sundance this year. Yep, yep. It, it, gr- great company to be in for both of you, I would say. Um, congratulations. And Thank I you. remember asking you guys at the time, like, you know, is is progress in any way kind of keeping up with rhetoric and how we talk about how things should be better. And I and I remember both of you saying at the time, like talking about it, it seemed like at the time you were still feeling like there was this like mandate or at least like this implication of like still writing blackness as a contrast to whiteness. And I think it was Nikki Atu who might have said um, white people just have to see themselves, even if they're the goddamn bad guy in bringing master to life over like pre-pandemic into pandemic negotiating that and then like rolling it out now I wondered what sort of the update on that question is for you yeah I think that you know I think it continues to be the case I think that it's 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 interesting because one of the things that I was reflecting on and this was a really helpful mandate that um when I was working on random acts of flyness Terrence and, you know, and, I, and probably the producers as well, uh, you know, had had worked through and come up with this, you know, certain uh, list of values that they wanted to embrace mm. and embody. And one of them was to not center whiteness. Yeah. And I think that it's an easy sort of space to fall into. And I just say that, I mean, in terms of like, if you're telling, if you're trying to tell a story that is about a black experience, don't accidentally define it, you know, in opposition to whiteness, because then you're also just telling a story about whiteness. And if we've got those, mm-hmm. you know, like we don't necessarily boogie need boy, it. do we? Yeah, there's a <laughs> lot, and you know, and and there are plenty of filmmakers who will continue to make, you know, <laughs> some awesome films that center white. They've yeah. got it, you yeah. know, like I'll watch it. Also, we'll all laugh and cry, and it'll be <laughs> yeah. an experience. So, so, and and something that I started to wonder about and sense is. For example, in um, talking about Master at Q&As or like with reporters or just like even sometimes with audience members, I would get often asked the question of, you know, what is the message Mm -hmm. or what's the lesson? And I started to get this spidey sense that would sort of tingle because for me, I thought like, you know, if a film's, if it's presented in that way and a film's purpose is kind of to be an an academic tool or like, you know, an an education-based uh, sort of implement rather than a piece of art, then it is, again, doing this thing of centering whiteness. Mm-hmm. Because even if you have a film where you have three black protagonists and, like, you know, it's almost, you know, entirely, you know, focused on them, mm-hmm. those kinds of questions start to, like, edge that, you know, white perspective back into the center. And so that's just, like, yet another manifestation of how it's really difficult mm-hmm. to get audience members, certain audience members to really just receive a film on the basis of itself and and just to immerse themselves in that, you know, black experience without trying to relate it back to how it can edify whiteness or mm-hmm. how it can like, you know, how how it can just bring it back into the force. So I think that, you know, I think it's going to be a long time mm-hmm. before we sort of move away from, you know, these things that Nikiatu and I were talking about with you mm-hmm. in pandemic year yeah, one. Yeah, and that was yeah, and that was year one. So that yeah. was that was even a minute ago already. Yeah. Yeah. Well and and that's a and that's such a that's such a beautiful part of watching Eve's Bayou is that it that it is the just like it's just the self evident world that they live in. Yeah. And and with having the three main women in your film each experiencing the sort of building horror on this campus um, in in their unique ways. How did you want to sort of unflatten these characters in your own story? How did you want to add texture? Yeah, you know, I think that I actually had a moment where there was a certain draft. It was probably like, you know, halfway through this sort of script process and I read it, and I showed it to Ben, my now husband. We were just oh, recently, congratulations. yes, congratulations, <laughs> <laughs> and and he read it, and he gave me a really good note where he said, "Well, I think it's great, but I think Jasmine's a little too good." Mm. And I thought about it, and and I and I thought about how it's true that she had 
kind of got in, you know, in drafts and just in the process of the story was almost like a bit of a saintly character. Mm. And I didn't feel like that was fair to her. Mm. And I didn't think that it was, you know, certainly a an authentic representation of what I had seen or experienced. And so I, I, I looked back and I just wanted to complicate the characters and I really wanted to bring in the you know, granular details of their own choices that mm-hmm. aren't always the right choices and the ways where they can be petty or mm-hmm. Jasmine can, you know, kind of try to usurp her roommate's boyfriend. Yeah, and do was, these when that scene was happening, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, what, what about this did you think was going to be a good I idea? Know, Jas- she thought. I was, yeah, <laughs> I, was, I was so mad at her. I know, I know. Yeah, bad decisions made, you know, and and Gail, you know, Gail gives Jasmine some very bad advice when she goes and sees her, you know. Uh, about three quarters of the way through the film. And mm-hmm. so I just really wanted to give the characters the space to be wrong mm-hmm. and make mistakes and not be good mm-hmm. all the time. I think that's and I think that I think that too is something that we see so in a pronounced way in the character of Eve in in, in Eve's Bayou. Like yeah. we have we have this character who reaches a critical moment where she's like, You you father have hurt my sister. Yeah. I'm and gonna she gets vengeful. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna kill you. I'll kill him, Sicily. I swear. I'll kill him for hurting you. Yeah. Like, I'm gonna find a way to kill you. I'm gonna take my money. I'm gonna I'm gonna go down to the market. I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna put a hex on you. Yeah, I'm gonna yeah. put a I'm gonna curse you. Yeah. How do you kill someone with voodoo? I mean, do you just wish real hard that they were dead? Or do you have to do something special? And watching the way that that movie ends and watching like her conviction just drive her so furiously up to the point where suddenly it feels like something might actually happen and, and this person who she's plotted to kill yeah. is going to die to watch her suddenly be like daddy let's just go home daddy let's just go yeah. home like the, oh, and you tragic. just feel the love that she has yeah. for him yeah it is and, you know, it, she starts out the movie saying, like, I was 10 years old the summer I killed my father. Mm-hmm. And so you're starting out being like, OK, I'm starting out knowing this child is a, a, a killer in some capacity, I think. But then you spend this movie becoming so endeared to her because yeah. of how much of everything Eve is in the hands of Journey Smollett. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, she's she's complex. She makes mistakes. She, you know, she tries to set her father up. (laughs) And 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 it's like that whole sort of uh, ensemble, Mm -hmm. you know, and I love how woman centric it is. And there's, you know, and they're all complicated in their different ways. There's obviously Sicily. Uh, there's um, her mother, Roz. 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 There's Moselle, and they're they're all wrong at certain times, mm-hmm. you know, because they're human. And I just think the the space that they have to like truly breathe and to exist and to be flawed is really beautiful. And I think that you know Casey Lemons was telling a truthful story in the way I don't and I think like she has said she didn't necessarily she wasn't setting out to be transgressive right yeah you know it did end up being quite quite transgressive just because she she gave them so much room to be real as as a filmmaker is that a I feel like a weird like pressure or responsibility like we're suddenly just like like I'm just making something and people are like oh it's so transgressive and you're like oh yeah (laughs) okay like I guess like that seems like a a weird thing to sort of be slugged with when yeah. you're just like trying to be honest. Yeah, I mean, it certainly feels weird to me and I I don't know like I mean, maybe I don't want to like flatter myself and you know <laughs> <laughs> come up with some false memory that I've been called transgressive, but I have like, you know, in reading about Master and in reading, you know, um, you know, some of the coverage of the film, definitely I kind of backed into something that can for a certain kind of person is controversial. And wow. I wasn't trying to be controversial, you know. Yeah. I thought that, like, you know, I thought that a lot of what I was talking about was quite self-evident. And, you know, and the the people that I talk to yeah. and that I just spend my time with, you know, they're not, I wasn't saying anything very radical in terms of, like, our own conversations. And so when I was suddenly, 
you know, confronted with some of these, like, some strong responses in uh-huh. some cases. And, like, you know, the strength of the response also indicated to me that, you know, I had touched a nerve in a, in a way that I that I had not even wanted to. It was, it, it was interesting. Uh-huh. I was like, wow, little old me? Like, I am so, <laughs> you know, I am so naturally, you know, try to be diplomatic and, like, right. I like to get along with people. I'm harmonious. And here I'm, like, <laughs> feeling like Malcolm X. Like, oh, my God. Like, what, what happened? Well, it, it's it's it, I mean, whiteness is just so so bad and awkward um, that like <laughs> like it's it's amazing how watching in the middle of Mastered that like promotional video about diversity for Ancaster because of it, it its tonal difference with what's around it it feels like oh this feels oh this is a satire and then it's like no this isn't this is one hundred percent straight face right right like that video like I've seen countless versions of that video yes. you know thank you for reminding me because I forgot to circle back to that but yes the sort of hollow rhetoric of, you know, espousing, you know, anti-racist value. I mean, it's like what happened um, in summer 2020 after George Floyd was murdered Mm -hmm. and there was, you know, this this wave of, you know, of response and like, you know, and it ranged the gamut from like totally sincere to like completely cynical. You'd see these like, you know, these vast corporations like put out their Black Lives Matter, um, you know, statement and then kind of leave it at that. And it's basically, you know, it's it's like, I don't know, Rikers Island puts out the message Black Lives Matter basically gets to that point, you know, and it's like there is a contradiction going on here. Like, you know, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, my mom is a retired professor. Okay, yeah. Um, and she had a delicious uh, this you moment oh. where she the she had had a kind of terrible time at a certain point with um, with this anonymous denunciation that briefly blocked her tenure. Oh, oh and, shit! Yeah, and so and and so she's she's in no way a live correlate because <laughs> my mom is. Good. She like <laughs> yes. She is the only. She is fully good, not flawed. Like, but but she did have this. You're like, like she, unlike Jasmine, is a saint. Yeah, she is, she a, is she's a, a sainted saint. woman. Yes, she she truly is. Yes, <laughs> I will let her be two dimensional in this case. But she had had you know, and it did. It I used some of it to like think about how these like you know these sorts of committees and stuff go. But anyway, she had had this horrible time where some of her colleagues had gone to the, you know, to the college president and had, you know, objected to her tenure appointment by uh-huh. saying that, you know, they had objections to her tone. And that was like all that she was able to determine. She had to go appeal it. And, and initially it was just like it was a whole nightmare. And it was really like, you know, kept her up at night and, yeah. you know, it was sickening. And anyway, you know, she she got her tenure years past mm-hmm. and the college president releases this statement in, you know, in support of Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And my mom hit the reply all (laughs) and said, oh, that's interesting because my black life didn't seem to matter when uh, my my tenure appointment was nearly denied on solely the word of two of my white colleagues who objected to my tone. Skewered. Blew up the email thread. It was so delicious. So, yeah, this kind of, like, academic hypocrisy, uh, it runs deep. It runs deep in my family. We've got a lot. We've got a lot to address. (laughs) (laughs) There are a lot of reply-alls. Yeah, exactly. This is my reply-all. This is your reply-all. Send. I did mean it. All right. Well, I'm I'm coming up the end of my time with you. So I the sort of one of the last the last question that I wanted to pose to you was um, there was another sentence that uh, Angelica had in her look back at at Ease by You where she described the movie as an exceedingly rare example of a coming of age tale that privileges the experience of young black girls. And I wanted to ask you if, like, what successors do we have to Eve in that, like, the allowance for that nuance that we did see in her and in that film? Like, does she have many cohorts or is it one of those things where it's like we're still kind of waiting? I mean, the only the only sort of young I mean, I'm sure that there are others, but I was thinking of Akila and the Bee with mm. uh, Kiki Palmer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I I know that that's potentially coming of age story, and mm-hmm. then I th- and then I'm out of answers, right? Which okay. is this? Which is just the sad reality. I really don't know. 
I don't really know of, of successors mm-hmm. to, to that character and to that, yeah. That is plenty an answer in and of itself. Yeah. I, you know, I <laughs> normally, I like, you know, it's normally, it's like if somebody says like the just the right inspiring thing, I'm like, that's the thing to go out on. But like the bottom line is, is it's not enough. There's not enough. No, there's not enough. And it's so necessary, you know, it's really like an age where, you're looking out for like confirmation of self just in the world of media. And you'll take what you can where you can, you know, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. I read Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. I'm identifying <laughs> with rat number two or whatever <laughs> it is. You know, you can like you could you could put it together. But yeah, it's it's nice when when you don't have to cobble together, you know, your your sense of of self and mm-hmm. identity and belonging from like a rat here Two white twins from, you know, Jacob Have I Loved over there and then, like, everything else in between. It's just nice when when a singular performance can hold so much of, you know— a viewer's experience. Mm-hmm, mmm. Yeah, it's really fucking convenient. Yeah, it's, yeah, it it's is. Really... It's, it's nice for it to be a one-stop shop. You yeah, know? yeah. It gets tiring trying to like you know use all your psychic powers <laughs> yeah. to like you know <laughs> like project yourself into media that's not made for you, mm-hmm. and you'll like you know it's possible, but it's like it's it's work. So like mm-hmm. yeah, ma- make it, let's make it a little easier, can we? Well, Mariama, when and where can the people find? Master, where can they find your film? So we are going to be released, Master's released March 18th in select cinemas mm-hmm. and then also on Amazon Prime Video. So please look out for it. You can stream it online um, and it may be coming to a theater near you. All right. Well, I th- thank you so much, Mariama, for coming in and talking to me about this and about Eve's Bayou and about Journey Smollett today. I really, really, really appreciate your time. Thank you, Jordan. You're the best. Thank you. Um, I really, really had a lot of fun. What a joy to talk to Mariama Diallo here in the studio and celebrate that her film is finally out in the world. If you are listening to this episode the day that it comes out, then Master is coming out tomorrow, Friday, March 18th, and it will be in theaters as well as on Prime Video. So watch it and then come back and listen to the episode all over again so you can have even more rich subtext to complement the entire conversation. But... Before we go today, I have something to say. I want to talk about the Batman. I love that I was talking to a friend about this, how we love that it's called the Batman. Like we're all old people talking about Batman. Did you see the Batman? Um, Well, the Batman, Matt Reeves' new installment into the ever-expanding franchise of Dark Knight films. And now... Our new, our new Batman, our new Bruce Wayne is Pattinson. It's Robert Pattinson. And this movie features the most gothy, angsty Batman that we have, I don't know, probably ever seen. Because, like, Val Kilmer was doing a little bit of that back in the 90s. Like, it was the, it was the bigness of 90s Batman and the brightness, but... His was definitely, Kilmer's was definitely a broody Bruce Wayne. And to me, uh, Michael Keaton is kind of the perfect combination of Bruce Wayne. He's a little bit broody, he was a little bit dark, but he was also a swaggering billionaire. And then George Clooney was like pure swagger. Like, let's go classic Hollywood movie star, pure swagger. Obviously, grim dark Batman uh, in Christian Bale, and then grimmer darker Batman in Ben Affleck in a fucking mech bat suit. Now we have come with what my friend, the director, Liam O'Donnell, has posited as perhaps the most Gen X blockbuster that has ever existed. I will let the Gen Xers debate that among themselves. But what we also get is, like, see, this is scene Batman. And when I say scene, I mean, like, the aughts. I mean, like, pop punk. I mean, like, ironed hair, black eye makeup, and somebody so unaccustomed to the light of day, he literally squints at the sunshine and has to put sunglasses on indoors. Robert Pattinson's Batman is so singularly obsessed with, like, his job and his very sad mystery and his origins and, like, trying to right the wrongs of Gotham and put everything back on track. Like, he's antisocial. 
He he's he's curmudgeon-y. This is high school Batman mom. I'm in my room. Leave me alone. Don't talk to me. And like it takes being energy to energy with Zoe Kravitz's Catwoman to even come close to shaking an emotional reaction out of Robert Pattinson's Batman Bruce Wayne. And as I'm watching this, I was like, this Batman feels familiar to me. Like, there's something about this Batman I'm really relating to in a way that, like, the Dark Knight, he's not my hero. He's not the hero I connect to. I'm not like, oh, yeah, that's my guy. Like, I I told her, I'm Batman, I relate. But, like, watching this was like, there's something that feels familiar about the way he's approaching this Batman and this Batman's values and this Batman's priorities. And I was like, oh, that's because this Batman is asexual. (laughs) This This is ace Batman. I, myself declared many times in the pod, panromantic gray asexual. And this is definitely like, I'm getting gray ace vibes from Battinson. He's like, you know, sex isn't like his driving motivation. He's really into his job. He's got a lot going on. He's got a lot of interests that keep him busy. And like a sex life on top of that is just kind of this tangential thing he's just not really interested in. He's never really pursued. It's not really like a part of his identity. And it takes the swooshing through a scene in various leather outfits Zoe Kravitz's Selena Kyle to even come close to catching his attention and I looked at this and I was like this is me this is me I got a lot going on I love my friends I have all these goals and the idea of like pursuing romantic relationships just feels like something that would take time away from all the other things that I want to do sex isn't really like a thing I give a shit about and I never really have the world is a dazzling spectrum who knows what the future holds but for now it's just like not my thing and I watched this and I was like hell yeah Batman for your priorities and I appreciate you not being out there mooning over every girl you see but all also, also recognizing the fact that that Selena Kyle is enough to get you thinking you might need to make some different choices, is enough to get you thinking that you might risk it all, that you might give it all up, because as a gray asexual person, it means there's some wiggle room, it means there's some room to negotiate. And while I was watching The Batman, I was feeling like that Catwoman was making me want to renegotiate some things. So it was just an eminently relatable performance, despite the fact that I myself am not brooding. I myself am not angsty or emo, but there was just a wonderfully asexual presence profile that I felt like this Battinson was bringing to the screen. Who knows what future sequels hold? I'm sure we're getting sequels. It was a pandemic smash. The movie is fucking rad. I hope you all go see it. It has the two sexiest things I've seen in a Batman in a really long time, which is the aforementioned Catwoman and that fucking Batmobile. Oh my god. And, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm loving the idea of following my ace hero into another installment and seeing how that shade of his life unfolds before us. So, yeah, that's my one quick thing. Uh, ace representation. We don't get it explicitly, so we've got a headcanon where we can. I know you hear me out there, friends. And that's it. That's our show. You can follow us on Twitter at FeelingScenePod. Or you can join our Facebook group at www.facebook.com slash group slash feeling scene pod. And you can also send us an email at feeling scene at maximumfun.org. If you want to follow me, I'm Jorcru on Twitter. That's J-O-R-C-R-U. Our theme music is by Andrew Epen. The show is produced by Marissa Flaxbart. Our senior producers are Kevin Ferguson and Laura Swisher. And this is a production of Maximum Fun. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture Artist owned Audience supported